This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Hi, everybody. Um, thanks so much. Just raise your hand if you can't hear me at any point. Um, uh, as Jana said, my name is Jolie Martin. I'm a quantitative user experience researcher at Pinterest. And um, many of you may not know what that is because it's not very common. Um, I'll give you the succinct version. It's, um, it is, there aren't too many of us, even in Silicon Valley. It's sort of a combination of qualitative research where I'm talking to users and data science where I'm looking at their behaviors. So I do both of those things, um, often in tandem. Um, and the title of my top, talk is Keeping It Real in Quantitative Research. And this is often stuff that I talk to more um, quantitative audiences about to try to make sure they can infuse an element of humanity into the data that they're looking at, right, instead of just being all numbers. Um, but I think you guys seem to be very good at that already. So um, hopefully this will be useful in also thinking about how you can add an element of data rigor to the work that you do, both in terms of your collaborations and um, maybe even some projects that you can take on yourself that start to bridge on that. So what I'm gonna do is go over a little bit of background about what is Pinterest, what are some of our um, major research questions, um, and what is the mixed methods approach that I'm proposing. And then I have a little bit of a case study where I talk about the kind of general strategy of working together between quant and qual, as well as a, one particular tactic that I use, which is coding open-ended survey responses, which is really something that anyone can do, and it kind of like, I think is in between um, qualitative and quantitative research. And then what this means for our organization and how we can use this. So by way of background, um, how many people are familiar with Pinterest? Yay, just about everybody. This is a design audience and we're a design company. Um, how many people have an account? Oh, that's great. And how many people actively use their account? Oh, wonderful. Okay, I don't need to go over this <laughs> in too much detail. So I, I don't like to assume there are places in the world where you can go where people don't necessarily know what Pinterest is or quite understand it, or maybe they have an account and they've dropped off. Um, our company's mission is to help people discover and do the things they love. Our mission has changed a number of times over the years, but that's what it currently is. Um, I've been at Pinterest for five years almost. Um, and one thing to really highlight with this is what we're not. So we are not a photo sharing site in isolation. Um, we do have photos, it is very visual and image based, but there's, um, we really also want people to be able to act on the ideas that they find, so that's in our mission. Um, it's also not a social network per se. You can connect with other people, but it's really over your shared interests and what your passions are as opposed to kind of like, I'm friends with this person, so I care what they're up to even if we have nothing in common. Um, the unit of analysis or the unit of content is a pin. Um, and this, again, is not just an image, but there's also some metadata associated with it, which um, hopefully in every case would be a URL that links back to a website where you can find out more information about that pin. Um, and people save them to boards, which are these human curated collections. And this is really at the heart of what we do at Pinterest and what makes the service valuable is this human curation. So if you save multiple pins to the same board, it could be titled just about anything and we don't do a lot of processing of the actual words that you use. Um, we know that those pins have something in common to you, either in, in terms of like they're the same topic or maybe they just meet your same preference or they're kind of the same taste. 
And here's an example of one of my boards. You guys are all familiar with this, but this is a little different than the way a lot of people use Pinterest. I'm more utilitarian. Um, I save articles and podcasts and things that I might want to get back to around the web um, in case I don't get, I have my, all my tabs open and then I eventually pin it <laughs> so I don't have to keep so many tabs open in Chrome um, or I can send them to other people. So that's one way I use it. And this is really at the heart of our research objectives um, that I'm going to focus on today are to understand diverse users and use cases um, instead of just kind of like the average or most common user um, so that we can improve product features for all of them, um, improve content recommendations, and of course the user interface where we convey these things to, to users. So the different types of variables that we look at, on the one side, um, a lot of people have drawn this dichotomy. There's kind of the attitudes or self-reported things like how well they understand the service, um, what, are, what are your passions and interests, are things that we can ask users and they can tell us about, what are their motivations in life, or their intent on a particular visit to our site, um, how much are they enjoying what they're doing on our site, and do they consider that to be time well spent? And this is a new measure for us that we really care about. We might not ask it to people in those exact words, but um, we know from some other services that shall remain nameless, like people don't always consider their time on the internet to make them feel better about themselves or um, consider it useful. Um, on the behavioral side, a lot of what I do is look at things like, what are the actual features that people use? And this helps us get some indication of how well they understand the different things that they can do on Pinterest. Um, what sort of content are they actually interacting with? It may not map directly to their passions and interests because maybe they just don't know that we have content in certain areas or we don't excel in those areas, but it's one measure of it. We can look at their intent by trying to, um, or try to understand their intent better by looking at action sequences that they take on the site. So maybe if they're doing a repeated search and refining that search, it suggests they're trying to find something very specific. Um, just their engagement over time, we have different um, classifications for how engaged users are. And of course, how well we retain them over time is very important too, as a growing company. Um, really, these are just kind of different imperfect ways, as I see them, of measuring the same thing that we really care about, which is user value from our product. Um, so the main idea of this talk is to try to think about how we can join forces to really bridge this gap and use the best of both worlds with mixed methods. So harnessing the strengths of both Qual and Quant UX, I've dichotomized them a little bit with a caricature. So some people might say, you know, Qual is like um, lacking um, something and <laughs> Quant is lacking something and they have something to be gained from one another. And so what I'm calling that in the center is sort of this gold standard of either quant at a larger scale, so as if we could be able to go out and do usability studies um, on lots of people, or quant with a more human element. So yeah, we want to know the data, know the numbers, but what's human about that? So looking at our process in a little bit more detail, who are the people that we're thinking about? Um, a lot of times with qual, we're talking to um, individuals and understanding their unique story in isolation from, I mean, in the context of their life, but not necessarily um, as it relates to what another person's story might be. And in Quant, on the other hand, we're a lot of times thinking about people as representative samples, like if we're running a survey. And then we're a lot of times catering to or figuring out what this average person is like, and that person may not even exist if people follow different extremes. 
And one thing I would advocate for that kind of falls in between that is thinking about users in terms of different clusters um, and what makes them similar or different from one another. And this is an actual machine learning technique that I use, and it's not as hard as um, it might sound to use machine learning, but even without that, in a more colloquial way, user clusters can really help you think about um, people who have something meaningful in common and groups that maybe um, have some distinctions that are meaningful. So what are we doing? Well, in Qual, of course, we're often doing usability studies and interviews where we're drawing out what are really kind of subjective descriptions of people's experience from them. Um, in Quant, on the other hand, it can feel a little bit more robotic. We're getting very objective measures that are hard to argue with if we count the number of times that a user takes a particular action, but we're a little bit distant from that. And I think one, one thing that could fall in between these two extremes is looking at people's patterns of experience. So um, what are the things that remain constant for a person over time and what's really evolving uh, about their experience? When and where, um, one of the great things about Qual is that a lot of times we are trying to get users to use the product as they would naturally. Um, more often than not, we're probably in the lab for the studies that we do at Pinterest, but sometimes we're doing in-home visits and things of that sort. Um, I think, um, as any anthropologist will tell you, the, the one problem with that is that, of course, they know we're watching them and talking to them. And there are always these moments where you know people are scrolling through their printer's app, and they're like, oh, I don't know why that's there. Um, <laughs> my wife must have been using my phone, or whatever. Um, <laughs> And um, on the quant side, you know, we, we're still often observing people through controlled experiments, but it can feel very distant. Um, we might know a little bit about the context of what, where they are, like if we're tracking their GPS location, um, or if we know kind of what their history of behavior is, but it can still feel very different. So, or distant. So I think what um, we would like to do is have something that's kind of in between. Um, ideally, we would be able to catch users doing what they really do without being observed and then ask them about it and kind of probe and introspect a little bit, um, which is kind of what I try to do with some surveys. But of course, as people pointed out, it is an interruption. Um, so why are we doing this? I think um, the methods really are kind of like what we think will be convincing for people in our organization. Um, we want to try to build empathy among our stakeholders so that they actually act on the things that we find in qualitative research. Um, a lot of times in quant, we're building up more of a body of evidence so that we can make a convincing case for something. Um, ultimately, I think what we would like to do is to really try to prioritize the different things that matter to people in the thinking about how we build products. We can't be all things to all people. So we need to understand like, what are the things that really matter at an individual level? What are the things that matter on aggregate? We might not be able to accommodate every individual need or every average user need. Um, and then a lot of times the way this manifests is we're trying to show that something is practically significant on a qualitative side. Like, um, this is meaningful to this individual in their life. They're using the product in this way. And a lot of times one thing that's great about working at Pinterest is that it really does matter to people um, more than I would expect sometimes and how it um, plays out in their relationships and their, what they do in their lives. Um, whereas on the quant side, we lose some of that sometimes. We can show statistical significance and that can make a strong case for some people that something's the right thing to do, see that it matters but it might be a tiny effect that just happens to matter when you have billions of data points. 
Um, so really, in between those two, I think um, there are some useful techniques like data visualization that can really help to reveal the insights on both sides. So what is actually a meaningful difference? You know, if you're doing data, good data visualization, you won't be doctoring your scales to uh, make a tiny difference look huge, um, but you also will have some numbers to back up things where you're, where you're making those claims. So let's see, how am I doing in time? Okay, great. Um, so I'm gonna go through a quick case study. Um, this is a project that's ongoing. In fact, I get to present on it next week when I'm back in San Francisco. Um, and it's been going on for several months involving um, oh, many people on my research team. So there are about 15 to 20 of us in total. I'm one of two quant researchers. Um, there were mostly qualitative researchers and a few market researchers. And so there's a few of each of us involved. And the big question here is what does good content look like on Pinterest? Like I said, I've been there for almost five years, so it's not that we don't know anything about this. A lot of the qualitative researchers and myself as a quant researcher have explored this in many different ways, but the goal of this project is to take a bit of a fresh look. There's been a lot of turnover at the company, so we have new people to convince as well, and it, it never hurts to take a new angle on it. And this is the first time we're really joining forces to do it. Um, and so when it comes to good content, we um, definitely know examples where users will say this is clearly bad or this is clearly good. There are some mechanisms for them to give us feedback on the site or of course in usability studies. Um, but the goal of this is partly to be able to make this more systematic so that we can know whether it's going to be good or bad before we show it to them, right? Um, and that's where the delight really comes in. Um, some of our considerations. Um, there's a component of this research looking at non-users or new users, and um, especially for these people, but for everyone, the ecosystem of content that they use really matters. So people might think of Pinterest as for me time when I'm you know, at home in front of the TV trying to unwind. Um, Instagram is for when you're trying to pass time on the train and see what your friends are up to. Or whatever the ecosystem of, of products are that a person uses, um, we're a share of that time. Um, especially for non-users, they often have mental models about what Pinterest is for, what sort of content we have. So like they might think it's a social network and say, why do I need one more social network in my life? Uh, some users, based on their experience with the, with the service itself, will have expectations about what sort of content we should be showing them. Um, in many cases, they've explicitly told us something about what content they like. If they follow something, or um, do particular searches, they've told us, this is what I want. Other times, they really expect us to be able to infer, like, I keep scrolling past that, um, I haven't looked at that in months, why are you still showing me stuff for my wedding, I'm, it's over, or what have you. Um, and there's this trade-off that's inherent in this, in that we really, there's, we're always running a risk um, of showing people some really egregiously bad content that they don't want. We're, we're fairly good about detecting like things that are just offensive or illegal or, or that kind of thing, but there's some stuff that people just really are not interested in. Um, versus on the other hand, we often um, hear the kind of um, joy that people get when they have a moment of serendipitous discovery. Um, so we have to, we're walking a pretty fine line on that between recommending things that we know you'll like for sure but might be kind of boring um, versus really trying to surprise you with something exciting. This is the 80s band, aha. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I, I don't know what they look like, but 80s. Um, 
So one strategy of this um, mixed methods approach is asynchronous collaboration between qual and quant researchers. So we're both kind of going along our tracks in parallel. Um, we do work very closely together a lot of times or communicate very closely even on our separate projects. But on a project like this one um, for the content quality, we really have kind of like staggered can you see those colors? Like kind of staggered pieces where um, one or the other of our sides of the, of the world will be more involved in kind of actively collecting data. Um, and in fact, there were actually many more phases than what I'm showing here to this study. And they were sort of overlapping, kind of staggered, kind of um, in, in sync and kind of not. So some of the opportunities of this are being able to scope out these projects together. Each of our unique streams, we have um, authority within our own domain to decide how to conduct our research. But a lot of times, the value of this is bringing together our, our prior knowledge that comes from each of the t different types of studies that we've done um, and developing some common goals for where we want to get in the end. Um, and then this continuous checking in and synthesizing what we've found so far. And that really allows us to build on what has been done in some of the prior studies. So if you found this in qual, you know, maybe I want to adapt what I'm asking in, in this survey a little bit or look at this other behavior um, and be, be more adaptive in that way. And then when we share stuff more broadly, as we're going to do when I get back, and we've had a few phases of this as well, we can have a more coherent narrative that where we can really triangulate the qualitative and quantitative research um, to tell the same story and have some co-ownership for what those findings are. Now, what are the um, potential pitfalls? They're the same thing. So there, there tends to be um, a little bit of territorialism, whatever you call these roles at your organization, whether you have, you know, you probably don't have a quant researcher, but if you have a data scientist or somebody who does more of the quantitative type of work versus somebody who does more interviews and usability studies, they might say, well, this is my area. Don't step on my toes. Um, there's a little bit of scope creep if somebody has a pet project or a baby and they want to bring their area of expertise in. And so these are um, things to watch out for. In the synthesizing phase throughout, a lot of times, you know, a roadblock for one project um, can easily become a roadblock for everybody if you have these contingencies that, oh, this has to be completed before that can be started. So um, you really have to make sure that doesn't just cause you to go off on different paths and just say, forget this, we're going to just do this independently. Um, and then in the sharing, I think a lot of times there are just going to be conflicting findings from the different studies, and it's your job to um, resolve them in some way. Do you really think they're, um, somebody made an error in the way they collected data or talked to users, or is there a reason? Why is that? Do we need to extend this and understand it better? Um, and then, of course, with any project, kind of like overclaiming credit or maybe even distancing yourself if, if the findings are not good and it's kind of a mess. Um, so these are the things to watch out for. And then I'm going to talk, I only have a couple minutes left, but I'll really quickly talk about um, one open-ended survey that I did early on in this project, which I do think is an approach that people could use regardless of how quantitative or qualitative they happen to be. Um, you have to have a bit of patience. Um, I won't go into a great deal of detail about the survey design. I run a lot of surveys, so there's some of these things that are just really best practices, like we restrict eligibility to English US users just 
to reduce noise unless we directly want to do a comparison of other users, which we often do. Um, we have a cool down period, so users don't get survey fatigue. Um, we tend to, um, if we just sample a random set of users, they will be highly engaged because if we survey in the product, it's whoever happens to show up. So if we really want to be able to compare users by engagement level, we have to dramatically oversample less engaged users. Like say, I want people who haven't shown up for the last month or whatever. And then there is a response bias. For this particular survey and many that we do, people have to actually come to Pinterest in order to get the survey. Um, but um, you had, it's a much less of a problem than like running an email survey where we only get about 1% response rate. So that's just um, one of the downfalls of survey research. It is a little, it looks a lot like the bad example from the, <laughs> the last time. Um, this is an old screenshot, but it, it, that's basically what it looks like. Um, we don't claim that, by the way, that surveys are, are meant to be a good experience for users to like vent or that, that kind of thing, and I strongly discourage people from using them in that way. It's an interruption that we know we're interrupting people, hopefully to improve the service for others, but we interrupt as few people as possible. So in this particular survey, it's open-ended. I asked them, we really just wanted at a high level to understand content quality and not make any assumptions going in. Um, oh. oh, go quickly. Okay, so this is what we asked them. Describe what makes the pin high quality for you. I'm kind of disparaging natural language processing here, so I won't talk a lot about it. But you can do fun things like make a word cloud, and some people like that, but it's not really super informative. Honestly, um, I mean, there's a lot of potential with nat natural language processing, but um, you have to be an expert in it to get a lot of value. Instead, what I did is I coded the open-ended responses. There were over 2,000 of them here, so it was really fun. Um, usually, re <laughs> I enjoy it. One other qualitative researcher on my team enjoys it as well. And tag them with the major themes. Um, and then I correlate them with behavior if you have this many and illustrate with quotes to kind of bring them to life further. So um, given that I've run out of time, I'll just put these up here. Um, this approach really allows us to bring more stakeholders on board, people who care more about data, people who care more about the story. Um, we can adjust our approach according to whatever the timeline constraints are or needs are of the project, um, increase our confidence when our findings are actually well aligned or make better trade-offs when they are not. Sorry, I don't have time for questions, but thank you guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.